Conclusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another edition of Diffusion. Sit back and relax as we palpate the pulse of science. I'm Patrick Ruby. On this edition, we'll feature space colonies, sustainable science, and giant sperm. But first up, here's the news. The case of the missing sunspots. A new look at the activity of the sun might help us to predict future solar storms, according to New Scientist. Sunspots are areas of intense magnetic activity on the surface of the sun. They can be seen with telescopes as big black spots. Sunspots can also indicate areas where solar flares might develop. These are big explosions from the sun's surface that can send out X-rays and UV waves that can disrupt communication systems on Earth. The sun hasn't been producing any sunspots for the last two years, which has been baffling astronomers worldwide. Two groups of scientists have been working to crack the code of the sunspot cycle and help us better predict them. Rachel Howe and Frank Hill of the National Solar Observatory in the US have used a technique called helioseismology to look at the activity of the sun over the last 15 years. This technique measures rhythmic pulsations on the surface of the sun created by pressure waves moving through the sun's interior. They have found that the pressure waves have been migrating extra slowly lately, and as a result, no sunspots. Matthias Rempel and colleagues from the National Center for Atmospheric Research, the US, have used a supercomputer to produce a 3D model of the sunspots. Superheated gas flows from the dark center of a sunspot to its lighter periphery along magnetic filaments. However, the magnetic field hasn't been in the right orientation to do this recently. Hence, no sunspots. While these studies might tell us why there aren't any sunspots right now, an underlying cause is still elusive. More research needs to be done. Botox for treating strokes. A 49-year-old man who was paralysed after a stroke for over 20 years can now walk again after being injected with Botox, according to an article in physorg.com. The patient, Mr Russell McPhee, was given the treatment and subsequent rehabilitation therapy at St John of God Hospital in Victoria. Botox, otherwise known as botulinum toxin, is famous for being an anti-wrinkle treatment. It is made by a bacterium called Clostridium botulinum. The toxin blocks the release of a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine from nerve terminals, which causes muscle paralysis. Botulinum toxin can be deadly in large amounts in our bodies, causing limb and respiratory paralysis. However, in the face, where some muscles are paralysed, wrinkles can temporarily disappear. On this occasion, the stroke had damaged an area of the brain causing permanent spasm of some of the muscles in the legs. By injecting the muscles with Botox, the spasms were stopped, giving the man a chance to walk again. 
Dr. Nathan Jacobs and physiotherapist Valentina Marek were part of the team of health workers using the treatment. They say that the Botox gave him the chance to walk again, but it was the strength of his own leg muscles that helped him to do it. Usually, if a muscle isn't used, it will shrink and grow weak, a process known as atrophy. Most of the time, this means the muscle is no longer able to perform its function. Luckily, in this case, the muscle hadn't atrophied too much, and Mr. McPhee was able to learn to walk again. Botox is also used to treat some other neurological conditions, such as brain and spinal injuries and multiple sclerosis. And finally, giant sperm for small animals. Big sperm have been found in both current and extinct species, according to ABC Online. The big boys can be found in the modern-day fruit fly, Drosophila species. The male flies are usually only a few millimetres long, but their sperm can grow up to six centimetres. Human sperm is tiny in comparison. To match the fruit fly proportions, our sperm would have to be 40 metres long. Large sperm were recently found in prehistoric mussels, confirming that the fruit flies were not just a fluky freak of nature. Renata Matske-Karatz from the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich and her team of scientists had made the discovery. They studied the fossils of ostacode species from the Cretaceous period using a new technique called holotomography. This visualised the tiny reproductive systems of the extinct animals. The females had receptacles in their reproductive tracts. These could change in size to accommodate the competing giant sperm. In most animals, millions of tiny sperm are competing for a few relatively large eggs and a number of factors including motility, timing and just plain luck determine the victor. In these big sperm species, it seems that larger sperm were an extra advantage to battle it out. Recently, Ian Wolfe attended the Foresight Innovation Sustainability Hothouse, or Fish at Six. This is a monthly forum for generating creative ideas on sustainable energy and waste management. It's held at the Department of Regional and State Development in Sydney. The forums are chaired by Janine Carl, the CEO of Fish at Six, and guest speakers come to present their new ideas for discussion. Ian and I talked about some Fish at Six ideas to address climate change and waste management. The Foresight Innovation Sustainability Hothouse, Fish at Six, is an event held once a month on the third Thursday of the month in Sydney by futurist Janine Carl. And at the previous one, she had several speakers. There was Associate Professor Douglas Tompkin from the School of Design at UTS. He reckoned that a lot of the problems with waste, because they're looking at sustainability and waste, is design. What's driving design is demand. And at the moment, design is giving us more products with a lower cost and a shorter life. Planned obsolescence. Mm. As invented by General Motors, which, of course, itself is now obsolete. It's gone bankrupt. <laughs> it's a bit of poetic justice in that, isn't it? It is. Irony. 
So he says, look, we need to go for longer life with our products, less less products, longer living. Sorry to interrupt there, Ian. I can fully identify that having worked in a retail business as a young uni student, desperately trying to earn some pocket money to fund my alcohol habit on the weekends. Um, I worked as a, in a retail outlet and the products that we were selling were basically all designed to be throw away. So you'd buy um, a hammer or you'd buy a drill or you'd buy, um, oh, can you guess that I worked at a hardware store? <laughs> <laughs> or you'd buy um So these are other disposable items. hammers. Um, well, hammer probably wasn't the best example, but the the drill bits definitely weren't designed to last that long. And in fact, many pro- products actually don't get used a hell of a lot. I was surprised to read that a power drill, you know, these battery-powered power drills, the average use they get in a year is about three minutes. I mean, <laughs> ridiculous. I think people sort of buy them or get them as gifts or something, thinking that they're going to do some <laughs> homework or housework or something. And, um, they never get used. So they're, they're all sort of anomalies of that sort. The tools, the um, nails, light globes, I suppose, is a good example of that. In there, They hadn't had the energy savers come in yet. And a lot of the globes were the cheaper ones that only had a certain shelf life, then you threw them away. Yes. Well, the problem with light globes, of course, is that the new ones, the energy-saving compact fluorescents, they don't last the five years that the packet says they're supposed to last. If they did, they'd be wonderful, mm. but they don't. In my experience, they usually don't last more than a year at mm. the absolute most, which is about the life of an old one. But what he was suggesting as a solution for our current system of products that don't last very long and lots of them is uh, what Germany has. Germany has forbidden landfill. Basic thing. In Australia, in America, in Europe, in most places in the world, all the unrecyclable rubbish, or the just most of our rubbish, goes into landfill. So if you're not allowed to put stuff into landfill, then you've really got to make sure it can be reused or recycled. So as a result, they're making quality, lasting products. So briefly, we had a talk to Swedish technocrats, the EV technocrats, as they call themselves. They have a website, en.org technocracynet.eu. They talked about economics and hacking economics, that economics is part of the problem. And they said what's gone wrong with economics, particularly is the replacement of, say, gold-backed money, where money was actually backed by something of value, to fiat money, which is where it's the money's value is pretty much declared by the government to be worth something. So it's like, you know... This is where the global financial crisis is, is happened from. We stopped believing in Tinkerbell and Tinkerbell couldn't fly anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so fiat money is unsustainable. It requires exponential growth of the economy. So there has to be lots and lots of real wealth generated to back up this fake money that fiat money is about. So his suggestion is that instead of having money, you have an energy expenditure in society. So he's talking about creating colonies of this new society, this new economy, because obviously um, you can't just change the world instantly and you have to see if it works. So he's looking at 
distributed governance, peer-to-peer. He's using sort of networking things for governance so that you have people talking to each other about how they're going to run things. And you have an energy allowance, a carbon allowance. So you're paid in energy yes. for your particular jobs. So well, you're not. No, 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 no. Everyone, the, this, this is where it gets rather radical. Basically, the, the key thing here is, one, you get a carbon allowance as a human in the society. This is how much carbon you are allowed to use in your lifetime. That's it. It's up to you. If you go over, then you're stuck on the dole, mm-hmm. pretty much. So you might say, well, what do you get paid for what you do? Well, their idea is to actually change work completely. So they reckon you have moneyless motivation. So you design work around people instead of trying to make the people fit into the work. So what motivates people to work? Well, they do the work because they enjoy the work. You actually fit the work to the, what the people want to do, the skills they have, what they enjoy doing. So you'll come to work because you enjoy coming to work, not because you're afraid that you'll die if you don't. What about jobs that people don't want to do? Well, like some some of the jobs which might be uh, what some people would consider no, not not as good dirty jobs or things that people really don't want to do that they only do now because they're paid. So. Well, if you think about it, the most undesirable jobs in society are not the best paid. They're the lowest paid. Mm. Yeah. Think about it. Does that make sense if what, the reason you do your work is to get more pay? Well, shouldn't the worst work in the world be the best paid in the world to motivate you to do it? Why would you bother? And if you think because about it... Because you can't get any other work. And why can't you get any other work? You might not be educated. So it's not not really about motivation at all, is it? It's about Uh, what you're able to do with your education. And your education, it's class, right? So if you're going to have a fair society, it's not really about motivating people at all. That's a myth. The money's not about motivating people or else people who collect garbage and do the sewerage work and all the things that we don't want to do would get paid the highest because no one, otherwise, why would they bother? Mm. Obviously, there are other things that force them to do this, not the desire for the money. If they could do other things, they would. So maybe you need to automate everything that can be automated and make the jobs more interesting. Or else, yeah, so they've got a couple of ideas. How well can it work? We don't know. It's very utopian. It's the sound of science. The sound of science. So on to more, more fun things and more scientific things. Brian Lennon, we've had on the show before, he talked about 3D printers and vegetable oil-powered cars and how to solve the problems of the future. So looking at sustainability, Brian Lennon had a few points. He said basically there is an urgent need to end the use of fossil fuel. There is abundant, cheap, sustainable energy available. So he mentions geothermal energy, solar energy. Geothermal power alone can provide 150 times our current needs. There's harnessing the power of the Gulf Stream. There's like endless alternative non-fossil fuel sources of energy. Where would, pardon for the silly question, but where would we harness geothermal energy in Australia? Well, there are sites outside of Melbourne. There are sites in Victoria. There are sites in a lot of states around Australia where the hotspots are closer to the surface and so you can drill to them relatively easily. And then you've got these hot rocks underground, you pump down some water, up comes the steam, you drive a turbine. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of where the hot rocks are not very far from the surface, so you can get to them. 
Now, there's no technical problem at all in replacing fossil fuel. Now, he emphasises this because you heard a lot from the Bush government, from the Howard government, all these outgoing right-wing governments. About baseload power. Baseload power and this myth that there are technical problems and that's why we don't have solar power yet. In fact, there is no technical problem. We can do it right away. So his next point is that why is all this? Well, government is in bed with the energy companies. The American government, the Australian government, the British government, most of the world governments are in bed with the energy companies. And they have practised, as in they're good at control of people. They're good with the advertising. You see a lot of advertising. They're good with the politics. They're good with getting the messages out there and swaying people's minds. So he suggests that they're Goliaths to our Davids. In the original story, David started out putting on a helmet and a sword, but he found he wasn't able to move easily, so he got rid of them. When the underdogs choose not to play by Goliath's rules, they win. Even when everything we think we know about power says they shouldn't. He suggests that we harass government by pointing the finger and saying, you are the problem. We look at things like clean coal the government's putting out. That's creating more of the same problem because there's no such thing as clean coal. He points out that Australia has more sunlight per square kilometre than Germany, for example, which runs on solar power. She uses more solar power than us. Yes. Why has Germany done so well with clean energy? Because they have a tariff. Mm. So that clean energy gets a little extra supplement from the government, just like in Australia, coal gets a supplement from the government, which Mm. most people aren't aware of. He talked about Australia being the Middle East of alternative energy. We've got so much of the stuff. That's an interesting analogy to have. So it we've, is. We've got the solar power as a given. We've got the um, the geothermal, geothermal the hot rocks, wind. Where we've would got we lots have of wind? wind on the coast, round the coast of Australia, and all sorts of places in Australia. There's lots of wind. Mm-hmm. So we've got wind. We've got geothermal. We've got we've got heaps. Right. We've got tidal power. We've got everything. So how much super? How much superannuation? which is we all have a compulsory contribution to, mm-hmm. is invested in fossil fuel. Ooh, I would say, if I had to guess, guess off the top of my head, 20%, 30%? of it. Um, basically, our super, our super funds invest in the big companies, which are the fossil fuel companies. They don't invest in things like solar power unless you go into a special fund. So he suggests that super is an untapped democratic bypass of government and corporate corruption. Mm. Don't rely on your government to help alternative energy. Don't rely on the corporations to do the right thing. Buy shares. You've got super. Get your super to be buying shares in the companies you want to be operating in Australia and not to give money to the ones that don't. For example, the, the guns pulp mill can only be built if the banks loan them the money. The Mm. company does not have enough money to build it on their own. It's all up to the banks whether it gets done or not, and that's up to the investors in the banks whether that's allowed. And if the investors, which could be you and me, if our super is invested in that particular bank, could say no. Mm. So we have a bit of democratic power because our money is now in shares whether we like it or not. So we've had this power forced on us. And now's the time to buy at the low price. It is. (laughs) There are several people who think that superannuation is an untapped resource, that uh, Australians 
need to take control of their super. I know I haven't really thought about it that much because I suppose when you're, when you're a bit younger, you think, oh, yeah, super. That's something to worry about once I've retired and you don't think so much about it. I know it's something that um, my parents probably would agonize over more than me. Well, the thing to remember is that super, well, two things. One is that everybody's been losing money in their superannuation in the last year because everybody invested in the bad stuff, right? All our superannuation all our superannuation companies in Australia invested in people who invested in these bad investments in America that went wrong. In these subprime mortgages were the bad investment, the obviously bad investment that only an idiot would invest in, right? Because you don't give a loan to somebody who can't even make a down payment, right? That's basic banking for the last couple of hundred years. But all of the super funds in Australia invested in companies that invested in the subprime mortgages. So everybody's lost thousands of dollars at least, mm. right? Every individual in Australia has lost thousands of dollars. Now, if we had some control over our super, which we have the right to exercise under the law now, then we don't have to let them invest in what we know are obviously bad investments. So many anti-nuclear protesters don't realize their super is buying uranium mines. So maybe you should look at your super not as something that's gonna look after you in your old age, but it's something you can use to look after you right now and make sure your money's not being used to invest in bad things that you don't want to happen. Thank you, Ian. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SER.com, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And now, John August gives us his vision of the past, the present, and the future of space colonies. I've long been fascinated with space and space colonisation, but it never seemed environmental or ethical. Rather than spending the resources putting people in space colonies, it seemed that they'd be better spent reforming our terrestrial situation. In any case, it would be the wealthy from the first world who would inhabit these colonies, not people from the overpopulated third world. And if something will drive the formation of space colonies, perhaps it will be marginalised religious and ethnic communities who seek a place of their own, with it becoming more and more difficult to claim such a place on Earth. Historically, though, it has not been marginalised communities seeking their own place. People at large have wanted to escape from this problematic world and make a fresh start. Decades ago, Gerald O'Neill put forward his ideas for the L5 space colonies, and Marshall Savage wrote his Millennial Project. These people with strong personalities developed passionate, cult-like followings. It's amazing what the yearning for an escape can drive. Of course, these are, the ideas in real cults are complete nonsense, and these ones were not quite as bad. 
Long ago, people set up alternate societies, which usually split under their own internal strain. There was the New Australia Utopian Socialist Community, set up in 1893 in Paraguay, where one tension was over whether or not you could consume alcohol, but also over the leadership of Lane, the initiator of the project. I wonder if we saw at work the principle that if you're running away from something, whatever it is, it will follow you. You need to address your own issues first. In the past decade or so, we've had people rally around the idea of setting up alternate communities linked by the internet, or indeed virtual alternate worlds in themselves. For me, they seem to have echoes of the urge which prompted people to look out to space. Be it cyberspace or space itself, they both capture the promises of a new beginning, an escape from a flawed world. But rather than just looking to escape from this flawed world, some become fixed on just how flawed it seems to be. Theirs is the world of conspiracy theories, which elaborate on and explain how flawed our world has become. And it's here I see another connection to aliens and UFOs with one major world government, the US government, trying to suppress awareness. But to me, this seems to be driven by a frustration, by a loss of faith with the world around us. The technical details of Gerald O'Neill's plans for the L5 colonies are quite amazing. Perhaps you've seen the paintings of the long cylinders with mirror panels, or read the description of the life you might lead on these colonies. And it's certainly fascinating stuff to read and look at. For me, however, a hidden aspect of all this is what drives it, what has made people passionate about it. And that's what I've tried to touch on here. Thank you, John, on your vision of the future of space colonization. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you want to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or if you'd like to contribute to Diffusion, send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing today were Ian Wolfe and John August. Diffusion is produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Patrick Ruby. Join us from your audio device of choice next time on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, it's Jeff Simmons with an old classic called Fins on what you can and can't eat. Has it got a claw and who does it to the cut? Has it got fans and scales? Paper as a fish. If it's a tasty dish, then you can eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. You can eat it. You can't eat.
Cause it got wings and legs.